0: Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and today's guest is Amy Barish from an organization called Her Justice. Her Justice provides legal services in the five boroughs of New York City to women facing poverty and abuse. Amy's the executive director at Her Justice. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you so much. So to get started, let's just get right into it and tell us about your background and your journey to Her Justice.
1: So I am an attorney, and I've always cared about women's issues. When I went to law school about seven years after college, I knew I wanted to work with women in poverty. And the issue that really seemed to be the least well addressed, uh, where there were the fewest opportunities and it seemed we'd made the fewest advances, was the area of domestic violence. So I have that in my mind. I went to a law firm right after law school because I had loans like everybody else, and it's also a great place to get training. So I worked at Hughes Hubbard and Reed for three years, and then after that, I left to start an order protection clinic in the White Plains Family Court. That's in Westchester County, which is just north of New York City, Uh, and I did that with the Pace Law School. So it was a way to bring law students into the family court and provide services to more women than we might have otherwise been able to. So doing that work was really interesting because when you start doing domestic violence work and you tell friends and colleagues, even those who are in the social justice sector, I find they often say things like, oh, that's so nice of you to do that work. It must be really hard in this sort of like strangely condescending way. And what I would say to them all the time is, you know, it is hard, but not for the reasons you might think. It's hard because the system is really a mess. The clients are amazing. They're really strong, determined women. Um, But very oftentimes, no matter how good a job you do as an attorney, you don't get for your clients what you really feel they deserve because the system is a really tough one to work within. So that experience, having run that clinic for about two and a half years where we represented over 450 women every year, really led me to want to do policy Um, and ultimately work in a place that can help individuals and make system change. So I left uh, the clinic. I had a couple different jobs, but I spent about 10 years in that time in government, both at the New York City Mayor's Office to Combat Domestic Violence, uh, helping to design and run the first Family Justice Center in Brooklyn, New York. And then I ran the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence, having a statewide view on policy and practice for domestic violence victims. So as I often say, my kind of checkered past makes sense in retrospect now that I'm at Her Justice, because at Her Justice, we provide legal services to women living in poverty in New York City by connecting them with volunteer attorneys from the big law firms. So with my background in, you know, in a firm, having done family court work, working with victims of domestic violence and other women living in poverty and working on the policy side at the city and state level all of those uh, experiences really helped me support the great work of her justice.
0: It's great that you like had this vision that you wanted to work with domestic violence and like you really stuck with it because I think not everyone has like this this is what I want to do and I know it and I'm going to go after it like have that path so that's really great that you had that. So I also read a little tidbit that you went to Brown and I am from Providence so I thought that was interesting.
1: Excellent. Yes, I did go to Brown, and I loved Providence.
0: Yeah, I thought I was like, what a small world that like I always have these Rhode Island connections as it being such a <laughs> small, small place.
1: <laughs> Great things come out of Rhode Island.
0: Yes. <laughs> so you went into it a little, but maybe into a little more detail. We can talk about what is Her Justice and about who you are and what you do there.
1: Yeah, well, Her Justice is actually coming up on its 25th anniversary. So next year, we will have been around for 25 years which is almost hard to imagine. Uh, when we were founded, to sort of put it in context for listeners, uh, Working Girl was the most popular film of the year. So when we were founded, it was really unusual to talk about domestic violence actually. People didn't typically volunteer from law firms to represent individuals in family court. So that was a real innovation that this organization started. Um, so when we were founded, we had the same vision we have now, which is to make sure that women living in poverty in New York City have access to free, quality legal services. And we started in the areas of family and matrimonial law, because that was where we saw the biggest discrepancy for low-income women. In the past years, we've also added immigration practice to our work, and we handle the immigration remedies that are available for victims of gender-based violence. We use what I call a pro bono first model, which means that most of the people to whom we give full representation are actually getting an attorney from a major law firm. So whereas legal services typically will do intake, assuming they're going to represent as many of those people as they can, we do intake, assuming most of those people are going to be represented by volunteer attorneys. So about 80% of our clients uh, get representation from an attorney from a private law firm. And our clients really come from all over New York City. Over half of them are Latina. About a quarter of them need an interpreter to access the courts. And many of them are mothers. And since we're talking about domestic violence today, I would say about 85% of our clients are current victims of partner violence. Um, And many of the things that our clients are facing, even if they're not currently being victimized by our partner, certainly make them more vulnerable to victimization Um, And they may have that victimization in their past. Unfortunately, there's a pretty big overlap between women living in poverty and domestic violence. So if that's the group you're serving, you can expect a large percentage of victims of domestic violence.
0: Yeah, I was reading about that pro bono first model in this article you wrote for New York Law School called Pro Pro Bono. And I thought it was interesting that 75% of your budget is on pro bono versus other organizations where I think it was around 12%, right?
1: That's right. And that really just goes to the model. You know, legal services, their job, the reason they exist is to have attorneys who represent low income folks. And that's a terrific model and it needs more and more support. We're here to sort of complement that model because there's so many private attorneys who want to help. And we find that it's more efficient if we focus on doing just that. So we can really put a lot of resources into mentoring, training, and supporting the volunteer attorneys to help clients and they can take some of the cases that legal services isn't able to take because they are just at capacity.
0: So you have been quoted by the New York Law Journal as saying working at her justice takes you back to your roots as a lawyer, which I thought was a a nice sentiment. So what do you do as the executive director that brings you back?
1: Yeah, working as a lawyer brings you back. I mean, as an executive director, oftentimes you're not actually working as a lawyer. (laughs) Um, So working as a lawyer brings you back, I think, because A lot of people went to law school with this vision of, you know, wanting to help use the law as a tool to make change. And when you represent clients, you do that every single day. But of course, working as an executive director, the contribution I make to that same goal is that I enable lots of other people to do that. So honestly, if any executive director is being, you know, honest with you, they'll tell you that they spend their time doing emails and meetings. That's really what an executive director does. But one of the things that I'm really excited about is after three years, I've spent a lot of time getting to know the organization and really strengthening our internal um, operations. We're a very high-functioning agency, and I was lucky to inherit a really high-functioning agency, but there are always new tweaks you can make. I inherited the organization from the founder, so the founder had been the executive director here for 22 years, and whenever you bring in a new set of eyes, you think of new ways of doing things, and the, you know, the field has changed over time, so it's a great time to really strengthen and think about how we might expand the organization, and what I'm looking forward to doing now is really getting out to promote the organization more. Uh, It's such a joy and an honor for me to brag about our staff because we have phenomenal staff um, and to let other attorneys know about the great ways you can get back to that reason you first went to law school, which is often, as I said, to make social change or help individual clients.
0: That's great. So we talked about how you do spend your time, but how do you wish you could spend your time, if any difference?
1: You know, the only wish is sort of what I said, I think, is getting out more to brag about the work that we do. Um, You know, the reality of a pro bono first model, I think sometimes people think you you do an intake with a client, they really need a lawyer, and you just connect them to a lawyer, and then you're done moving on to the next client. But the reality is it's an enormous amount of work because we work with very talented volunteer attorneys. But, of course, these are not lawyers who practice in family court on a day-to-day basis. They may be transactional attorneys. They may be intellectual property attorneys. You know, they could come from anywhere in the law firm. So while they're certainly expert in learning new areas of law, you know, as a, a junior or mid-level associate in a law firm, you spend a lot of time learning new types of law. Um It's really our job to make sure that they are as educated as we can make them on the family matrimonial or immigration law that they need to know. They also need our support in learning how to work with a client who is somebody who's living in poverty. Most of their clients at law firms are going to be just from a very different background And then, of course, if it's a domestic violence case, they need additional help in understanding how to work with a victim of domestic violence. So all of that is a lot of work on our end, and that's where we put our focus. So I think that works terrific. And like I said, that's what I did when I first got here. And I think the only thing I wish I could do more of is something I'm planning to do more of, which is really get out more and promote the work that we do, promote the opportunities there are for other volunteers. And next year's our 25th anniversary. So it's a great time for me to, you know, get out of the, get away from the emails, away from the meetings and really get out into the world a bit more and let people know about her justice.
0: That's great. So we just touched on the domestic violence. So to pivot, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And in a great piece you wrote for your website called Justice for Victims of Domestic Violence, you said that domestic violence is so widespread that it's still the most common kind of assault call that police receive. So let's talk broadly about ways that pro bono lawyers could get involved or be of service to survivors of domestic abuse, which we just touched on a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think when people think of domestic violence, they often do think of police. Um, surveys of the general population have shown that if you ask folks what's the first thing you would do if you knew someone was being victimized, it's called the police, which is often a great instinct. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But a lot of people don't realize the important legal remedies in family Um, Supreme and immigration courts for victims of domestic violence. And that's where we work. We don't work in the criminal courts. So in New York, um, divorce is actually handled in Supreme Court, not in family court, unlike in some other places. So we do family court cases for victims of domestic violence. That can be an order of protection, which is a vital um, protective remedy for victims. And you can get an order of protection in criminal court, but typically only if there's been an arrest and a lot of our victims either haven't had police come to the incident for a variety of reasons or they're not really interested in pursuing a criminal justice remedy. It may be because they're foreign born and they're uncomfortable working in the criminal justice system. It may just be that they don't wanna see the father of their children arrested, but they'd like to see him stop hurting them. So there can be a lot of reasons why going for a civil order of protection is more appealing to victims of domestic violence. Um, So those are great cases for volunteer attorneys, and we often mentor on those. They are trials, or they can go to trial. Sometimes they'll settle within a court appearance or two. But what's great about an order of protection case is not only are you getting a legal protection for your client, but there's a lot of research that shows that victims who get civil orders of protection are more likely to take additional safety-seeking measures after they've gone to court. And we think the reason for that is that when you go to court for a civil order of protection, First of all, you're the litigant. You know, in criminal court, it's the the city or the state bringing the case on your behalf. In family court, it's you bringing the case. So it gives a sense of um, autonomy and agency to a victim of partner violence who may not have experienced that for a while. And then if you're successful and you get the order of protection, the judge is basically ratifying your experience and saying you were right and your partner should stop behaving in this way. And that's really gratifying for a lot of our clients who may have lived with a partner who for a long time has been demeaning them, telling them they're crazy, putting them down. So to go to a place of authority like a courtroom and have a judge say that they're right is really empowering. So I think Lawyers should remember that not only are they going to get this terrific legal remedy for their client, the order of protection, but they're probably going to give them some strength to go on and do the other things they're going to need to do because that's probably not going to be the end of the trajectory for the victim of domestic violence.
0: That is a great motivation and perspective of looking at it for lawyers who do want to get involved. So in the article, you also stated that domestic violence is more accurately called intimate partner violence. What was the thinking and the motivation behind using this terminology, which I know her justice uses?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting debate in the field. I think in the general public, the phrase domestic violence is the more recognized phrase. So we all tend to use them a little bit interchangeably, because if you're talking to someone who is not an expert, you want them to know what you're talking about. So we'll say domestic violence, as you mentioned, October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So that's still the more commonly used phrase in the general public. But the um, term intimate partner violence is a little bit more precise and speaks a bit more to what we are typically talking about. And by that, I mean when you say domestic violence, that can include any kind of violence within a family or household. So, for example, it can, it can refer to child abuse when a parent is abusive to a child. It might refer to abuse between other family members, let's say between siblings or um, intergenerational abuse when a child living at home might abuse a grandparent. And while all of these things are obviously terrible and need to be addressed, they're different in their dynamics from abuse between intimate partners, so people who are married, formerly married, um, or have a dating relationship or a former dating relationship. So often when we say domestic violence, we, what we mean is that intimate relationship. So the term intimate partner violence just makes it more precise and makes it clear what we're talking about. So it's sort of a subset of domestic violence. It also, for some of us in the field, we feel that it's more accurate because domestic tends to have a somewhat um, minimizing uh, sense to it, um, that it's just a private matter. And we want to say, you know, let's not characterize it. It, It's a kind of violence. And it's just a violence that happens between two people who are intimates. And then as part of that, the domestic nature implies a shared home. And we know that a lot of partner violence happens between people who actually don't share a home, who may not live together. It also happens in same-sex couples. And we didn't want the term domestic to suggest that, you know, anything else. So it's really a more precise term that comes out of the health field, the criminal justice field still tends to use domestic violence more commonly, but more and more we're seeing that when folks say domestic violence, they'll then break it down into categories, one of which will be intimate partner violence, because it's more precise.
0: I think the distinction is really helpful to be specific, because I I guess I never thought about it as how many facets there really are, because you're right, usually when people say domestic violence, they really do think of this intimate partner violence, but it can be so much more. So back to. Absolutely,
1: and the data, sorry to interrupt, but <laughs> okay. sometimes the data can be really confusing because when you see police departments re- release data on domestic violence, you have to be careful to just make sure you understand what that means. And very often they're combining all those kinds of violence into their report.
0: Oh, yeah, that's definitely true, and something I will keep an eye out for now that I know more about this. So, before we talked about a little bit about divorce and um, how that kind of is more than just divorce and all the issues that can stem from it, including abuse. So, since divorce can be a social issue, since many low income women are often forced to stay in abusive marriages due to monetary issues, uh, could you expand more on this and the work that Her Justice has done around divorce as a social issue?
1: Sure. So we feel really strongly that getting representation for low income women, especially victims of domestic violence who are trying to get divorced, is deeply important. Um, all the research shows that women are poorer after divorce, uh, poorer than the men are, but poorer than, you know, in general. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Women typically make less than men in the U.S. economy, and a lot of um, partner violence involves financial abuse. And that can include things like destroying people's credit scores, um, preventing a partner from working, causing them to lose their job, or pulling away um, support that they're going to have to pay for later, like caring for children. A lot of our clients also rack up debt because they're in an abusive relationship. So, when you pull two households together, it's always more expensive to have two households as opposed to one. And our clients, if they were victims of domestic violence, also are then going to be facing extra costs. So, they're going to have to pay for child care as opposed to perhaps having relied on a partner for that. They may have owned a home in tandem with their partner, and they need to make sure that they get an appropriate allocation of those assets at divorce. So it's really important. Victims of domestic violence face a lot of financial hardship when they go out on their own, and if they are also getting divorced, it's so important that they have the legal protections they need to maintain access to the resources that are rightfully theirs. Um, You know, there's no, in New York, for example, there's no right to counsel for the financial aspects of divorce. And so, although you can get an attorney assigned to you for the custody piece of a divorce, you can't for the economic piece. Um, And as I said, you know, the research shows that recently divorced women are much more likely to be poor, according to the US Census. Recently divorced women are more likely to be living with their children. So, we know that typically the custodial parent is the mom, they're more likely to be on public assistance and about 22% of them are likely to be living in poverty post-divorce. So a legal, again, you know, legal representation not only gives people a really important legal remedy, they get a divorce that allocates assets appropriately, but they give an economic benefit to the client post-divorce.
0: Yeah, it sounds like people don't always think about the many facets of divorce and the ramifications. And even when I was reading about one of the articles you wrote, like, Child support payments are probably a result of that where, like you said, these women are in poverty and they could be making, getting $50 a month. And I know you guys step in and kind of help increase those payments. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of good work to help with all of the ramifications of these divorces.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, it's interesting with our domestic violence response has really changed over time. And initially we thought about it as this emergency crisis moment, which it often is in the moment. And that's when you call the police and you're, you know, you've just been subject to a physical assault. But the ramifications of domestic violence go on and on and on. And when you try to tease yourself out of an unsafe family, or relationship, it's a long process. It's a complicated process. And unfortunately, it often does, it can lead to um, poverty for women and often women with kids. So I think it's great that the law can be used as a tool to try to sort of equalize the playing field there and bring women back up to some kind of economic level uh, at which they can really support themselves and their children.
0: So, like you were saying, that this work is really complicated. So what types of support does Her Justice provide the volunteer lawyers, most or some of whom have no background in these areas?
1: Yeah, well, that's really what we pride ourselves on is how much we support the volunteer attorneys. So you're right, the cases can be complicated, but what's great for volunteer attorneys from firms or corporations is that They're excellent attorneys. As I said before, they know how to learn new areas of law. That's what they do at law firms. You know, I was an associate at at Hughes Hubbard for three years, and every case I worked on had different areas of law. But one of the things that lawyers often don't learn, at least not within the first couple of years of practice at a law firm, is what I call the verb of lawyer ring. So you know how to learn the law, you know how to apply the law to the facts, you know how to write a memo of law, but you've probably not set foot in a courtroom yet, at least not as the primary um, attorney on a case. You may not have spoken directly to opposing counsel, you may not have even called the clerk of a court. So very often the first couple of years in a law firm, you haven't had control over a case in the way that you will with us. So on the one hand, that can be a little bit intimidating, but it's a great experience for volunteer attorneys, and you do it hand-in-hand with our attorneys. Our lawyers are really experienced. They've done you know thousands, tens of thousands of cases, probably, among them. And we provide first training to the attorneys. We provide ongoing mentoring, and by mentoring I mean things like we'll review papers before they're filed, we'll have a phone call to strategize about strategy, about how to have a conversation with a client, we sometimes go to law firms directly to do Q and A's. If we've got a couple of attorneys at the same firm who have a similar kind of case, we might go in person to do a Q and A with them. And we really um, do a lot of our support for the attorneys by the screening we do up front. because we make sure, we do our best to make sure that all the cases we place with volunteer attorneys have a client who's in a position to be able to work with that attorney to try to make the most positive um, experience for both of them going forward. So we really, because, as I said before, we're this pro bono first model, the pro bono piece is sort of our bread and butter, we're able to put a lot of resources into supporting the volunteer attorneys.
0: That's great. So you have another kind of way that attorneys at law firms can get involved. You have an externship program with some law firms. Could you tell us more about this program?
1: Sure. So we have an externship program currently with four law firms, Wilkie Farr, White & Case, Aiken Gump, and Fried Frank. And they send us associates, um, mid-year associates, usually third or fourth-year associates, and they come and work with us full-time for about four months. Uh, those associates overlap with their predecessors, so they get a sense of the cases and they can shadow to court a little bit. Each of them has at least one, if not two supervisors here on staff. We also have an attorney who runs the entire uh, externship program and who's responsible for doing things like brown bag lunches around specific topics, bring in outside speakers, do case conferencing. And then because these firms have had externships with us for a while, the externs also have some support back at the firm and oftentimes will reach out to former externs to talk about cases. It may be the extern even worked on the case that they're working on. So those externs sit with us, as I said, for about four months, work with us full time, and they have a full Her Justice caseload. So what's terrific for us is obviously it expands our capacity. We're able to give those attorneys some cases that maybe are a little bit more complex than we might give to a volunteer who's back at their firm because the extern is sitting here with us and so we can really give them the most robust wraparound uh, support on those cases. And we hear from the firms that it's such a great opportunity for their litigators in particular to, as I said before, kind of learn the art of lawyering. These externs are handling a full caseload on their own with our support, but they're going into court on a regular basis. They become very accustomed to uh, getting clients ready for testimony, getting experts ready for testimony, working with opposing counsel, doing conferences on cases, and really understanding what it's like to be in charge of a case and strategizing about the best way to go forward on a case and then explaining that strategy to a client. So although the firms typically don't take family court or divorce cases, that kind of skill, strategizing, thinking about the case, working with opposing counsel and clients, those are obviously skills that any lawyer needs to have. So we've heard from most of the um, partners at the law firms that have these externships with us that the externs come back to the firm's much more mature attorneys after four months with us. So it's really kind of a win-win. You know, we are, it's great for us because we, as I said, can expand our capacity, but the firms find that they get a very sort of robust learning curve when they're here with us, so the associates come back to the firm really ready to go on a much higher level.
0: That sounds like an amazing experience for everyone involved, because as a lawyer, you can kind of explore all these areas of law that you probably don't get to do on your day-to-day and give back for, I mean, months at a time, which is nice to give your, like, full focus on something that, like you said, you might otherwise not be able to do normally.
1: Exactly. And they, you know, I talk to all the externs when they join us and when they leave, and that's really what they say is that it's just a a time to focus a little bit on getting that, that feeling and getting the feedback from the clients. Um I will put in a plug too that every now and then I can't I won't overpromise it's not always but every now and then our externs actually make law. So we had one pretty long case that a series of externs handled. Um it was a case of Alice M whose story is on our website. And she was represented by a series of Freed Frank externs in her litigated divorce. This was a woman who'd been so brutalized by her husband that he was actually criminally charged, tried, and convicted for 40 years in prison. And I can tell you in New York, to get a 40-year sentence, you have to have done something fairly atrocious. And one of the things that he did in his abuse of um, Alice, his wife, was he raped her. From prison, while he was in prison, she decided to divorce him, which seemed like a reasonable next step to get her life on track. Um, and, you know, the automatic pilot response to any divorce in New York is equitable distribution. So he would have had access to her pension. She's been a city employee for some time and um, access to half of pretty much everything that she had. And I should mention, he never works during their marriage. All of the resources they had were because she managed to keep and... and um, prosper in a job. So um, thanks to our representation of Alice, not only did her husband get none of her money, he even was requesting half of her furniture from jail. I'm not quite sure what he was going to do with it there. But um, thanks to the representation by the Free Frank externs, not only did he get none of the money, and we think it's the first time there's been a divorce, a written divorce decision that gave literally 0% to one of the spouses, but it also in a written decision said that rape should be considered an egregious circumstance such that the partner doesn't get any of the proceeds of the marriage. And that's the first time that it's been written that rape is an egregious act um, at, le- at that level. So it's important, I think, for volunteer attorneys to realize that no matter what we think is sort of considered obvious, maybe in the general public, as we all know, the law sometimes takes a while to catch up. So that was a great opportunity for the attorneys to make law. And that decision came down a little less than a year ago.
0: That's a powerful story. And it's amazing that they took this time and actually ended up coming out with like a precedent that will affect other people for longer than this case. So that is one success story that definitely sounds like will contribute to the good of the world. Um, could you share another meaningful success story?
1: Sure, I mean, we have so many, of course, but um another one is the case of Myrna. Myrna's case is interesting because it shows how all of these types of law really intersect in our clients who are victims of domestic violence. So Myrna um, came here from the Philippines. She met her husband on an online dating site, and they fell in love that way. They had visited back and forth a couple of times, and um, she, her, her first husband, I should say, had passed away. She had children already, and she fell in love with this man, and she came to the United States to marry him because she was in love with him. And after they started living here, he became physically abusive to her. He treated her in ways that she didn't expect and were not what she thought would happen in a loving relationship. And at one point, he punched her hard enough that she did punch her in the face, so she had to go to the hospital. And while she was in the hospital, um, she was referred to us, to her justice, by a social worker at the hospital. So that was really lucky. Um, She was referred to us and she was placed with an Aiken Gump um, volunteer attorney. And she um, filed, the volunteer attorney was able to file an immigration petition for her so that she could get her legal status independent of her husband, because he kept saying that was one of the things he did that was abusive and controlling was he kept promising that he would get her status. He was a U.S. citizen, and he kept not filing. But there is a way for people who are married to a U.S. citizen to file on their own to get immigration status if they are victims of domestic violence. So she was able to file in that way. We also filed for a divorce for her, and um, she really says she credits us with literally saving her life, that she didn't know about these legal remedies, she wasn't from this country, she doesn't didn't know what was possible for her, she was sleeping on friends' couches as she tried to figure out how to make sense of her life. And by connecting her with this Aiken Gump attorney, she was able to get a work permit. She was able to, you know, got the divorce, got the work permit, got an order of protection, and she's now divorced, is working, she's going to school, and recently her four children were able to join her from the Philippines. So that's a really phenomenally good story and um, just shows how empowering it is when you connect someone to all of these resources. She just, on her own, would not have had any idea how to navigate our system, and absolutely deserved to. She'd been treated brutally and, um, you know, deserved to have a happy ending to her story, which she finally does.
0: She came from like an unknown place, had this horrific thing happen to her and was alone. And this was not seems like a simple solution. There were many different steps she had to take. And it's great that you guys were able to kind of help with all those steps. It's not just one thing. It has many layers.
1: Absolutely. Which is why I think it's so great that we do family, matrimonial and immigration law, because, you know, the client shouldn't have to search around to find a different person to help with each of their issues from their perspective. It's just their life, you know, so we can try to provide those wraparound services um, and all of the legal issues tend to intersect. So it's often much more efficient for the client to handle all the legal issues at the same time.
0: So like this story that you just told the woman before that, these are emotionally challenging matters. How do you and your colleagues avoid burnout and compassion fatigue?
1: That's a great question. You know, morale, I think, is really important, and it's something we focus on a lot at Her Justice. Um... Little things make a big deal to show that you really care about making sure the staff is taking care of itself, themselves. So we have a social committee here. We did a citywide scavenger hunt as our office outing a couple of weeks ago, which was really fun and broke into teams and ran around town. Um, We have yoga classes on Friday afternoons that are available to the staff. Um, And one of the things that we're doing now, we're really proud to be in the process of hiring a social worker. And the social worker is going to help, I think, the staff, the volunteer attorneys, and the clients. So, you know, it's one of the things that that you need to avoid your own burnout and any sort of um, uh, stress that you might face from having listened to all these stories all day is to take care of yourself. But people who are helping clients also really are helpers at heart, and it can be really stressful to know your clients have problems that you can't help them with. So for our attorneys, and especially for the volunteer attorneys, you know, if you have someone like Myrna who needs to get a divorce and needs immigration care, but meanwhile is sleeping on couches and her kids are separated from her for a long period of time, she needs a lot of other non-legal help, too. And it's very stressful for our attorneys and the volunteer attorneys to know their clients are in, in distress and not be able to help them. So by bringing on a full-time social worker, that person's going to complement the social work interns we've had for some time. We'll be able to say to our volunteer attorneys, if your client is in crisis with housing or just emotional crisis, you can send them back to us and our social worker is going to be able to give them some immediate support and connect them to complementary services. So that's going to be a really important complement, I think, to the things that we do to support our own attorneys here, the kind of um, self-care that we really promote within the office. So that combined with having a full-time social worker here to support our attorneys and the volunteer attorneys are things we take really seriously.
0: It sounds like the social worker will be able to kind of help with the things in between that you wish you could help with. And we have preached on this podcast that self-care is very important and I've had people talk about also doing yoga, and uh, they're all great remedies, and it's a really important thing to do. That I think some people don't do enough of, but it's always good to have like a place that will remind you of that.
1: Absolutely, and we really focus on especially on our externs because. When you come to a place like Her Justice, if you've been used to working at a law firm, there's a lot of stress at a law firm, but it's a very different kind of stress to come to a nonprofit and feel responsible for the outcome for an individual in crisis. And a lot of the externs are just sort of surprised by that kind of stress. They didn't necessarily anticipate it. So a big part of our externship project is really checking in with our externs to make sure that they're okay, letting them know of the self-care opportunities we have here at the office because they're, of course, available to all of the externs as well. Um, And I'm happy to report that the externs came with us on the scavenger hunt too so all of those activities are open to them because they're really like staff people they're part of the her justice family when they work here
0: great so since you've been at her justice since 2014 what has changed the most
1: Well, what has changed it for justice is that, as I said, next year's our 25th anniversary, and some of the things we've really been focusing on are trying to stay as cutting edge for the next quarter century as we were for our first quarter century. So as I mentioned, when we were founded, there were really very few organizations that provided free legal help to women living in poverty, women facing domestic violence. And we're going to continue to do that work because, unfortunately, there's still a lot of need, but also trying to think about what can we do going forward that is as cutting edge. So that's why you're hearing me talk a lot about focusing on the economic benefits of legal representation, because we think there's a lot of room for growth there. Um, in It's both a real need for our clients, but also a place where volunteer attorneys have not gone as often. Um, we're looking at bringing in financial advice for our clients to complement the legal Legal services. You know, when rich people get divorced, there's a whole host of financial advisors who come into play there. And when poor folks get divorced, there usually aren't. And sometimes it's even more important because there are so few assets. It's really vitally important those assets get distributed fairly. So even if it's just, quote unquote, a pension, that pension is incredibly valuable to both parties and needs to be addressed properly. And it usually isn't if there isn't a lawyer. So we're really looking at the economic benefits of legal representation. And we're looking at different sizes and shapes of pro bono opportunities for our volunteers. So we know that attorneys at law firms want to help, but they've got pretty punishing schedules of their own. So we try to make sure that we have clinical models We have a U-Visa boot camp that's very popular, um, and we are looking into a court-watching program. Really all different kinds of ways that people from, you know, a one-day in family court observing to a multi-month litigation case uh, that attorneys can volunteer with to make sure that we can really match the opportunity with the need. And in terms of what has changed, I do just have to mention that in case our listeners hadn't noticed, we do have a new federal administration and a new president. Um, and that's really changed an enormous amount for the organization and for our clients. So as I said, we do immigration law. We have a lot of foreign-born clients. Not all of them come in as immigration law clients necessarily. They may be immigrant clients who are, you know, litigating in family court. Um, but all of this uncertainty around immigration law has really wrecked havoc in a lot of um, for a lot of our clients. And we've been as responsive as possible. We're doing a lot more community outreach and education to make sure folks know the status of the law. And we're actually doing a lot more outreach to the firms for the same reason. If we have a volunteer attorney who's representing an immigrant client, we want to make sure that attorney is equipped with the knowledge as to how to advise their clients. So we've been doing um, information sessions at law firms as well to let them know what the status of immigration law is.
0: Great. So with the 25th anniversary and all these programs, it sounds like you have a lot on the horizon to come in the next few years.
1: We really do. I mean, um, you know, the thing nonprofits often say is we'd like to put ourselves out of business, but so far we haven't seen that happening. So we're going to be busy for a while to come. That's
0: great. So let's end with one or two concrete takeaways that'd be helpful for potential pro bono lawyers to know.
1: Well, I would just say, you know, having been a pro bono lawyer, I think it's important to remember, especially now maybe when I feel as though everybody wants to do something, that no matter how busy you are, you can make a difference. It can feel really overwhelming to be a junior associate at a law firm and your schedule's not always your own, but there are all sorts of pro bono opportunities from litigation to memos of law to one-day clinics. So don't think that there's nothing you can do. There's always something you can do. And then as we were talking about before, I think an important takeaway is just remember you're not in it alone, that volunteering to do pro bono can feel intimidating because it's taking you out of your comfort zone. But there's so much legal, emotional, and strategic support that we can give you here at Her Justice if you want to take a case. You're not in it alone. You'll probably find colleagues at your own law firm. You may find colleagues from law school that are at different law firms. And you'll certainly find all of us here to support you with any challenge you might face doing a case. So you have time, you can make a difference, and we're here to support you uh, as you volunteer.
0: Those are great takeaways. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us on the pro bono happy hour.
1: Thank you so much for having me. As I said, I really love talking about our work and talking about the great changes her justice makes for its clients.
0: New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do we appreciate the feedback. It would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to bono at probonoinst.org.